We are in Psalms 3. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but um, anybody have a phobia? Anybody? All right, let's find out. Let's find out. Nick's got a couple up there. So uh, this psalm, Psalm of David, was written, this is the first psalm with a superscription. And the superscription is there at the very first. You should see it at the top of this psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. How'd you like to have that as a subscript for um, one of your writings? When he fled from Absalom, his son. And, uh, and David uh, here fears for his life. So when you think about fears, I went ahead and pulled up uh, the most common fears out there. So I was curious to see how many uh, people have these. Uh, acrophobia, that's the fear of heights. Anybody? Fear of heights? Says 6% of people. I'm not scared of heights, I'm just scared of falling. I mean, right? Anybody, anyone ever bungee, bungee cord jumped off of the New River Gorge in West Virginia? Anybody? Anybody would other than Nick? I'm pretty sure Nick would. But you would really? Dude, seriously. That's a, that's a strong. It'd be cool. All right. I want to do that now. I want to do that. Uh, how about aerophobia? Aerophobia, or is the fear of flying? This is interesting. Between 10 to 40% of U.S. adults. Anyone fear of flying? Because you never guessed that if you've been in an airport this summer. I mean, planes are packed and people are, people are crazy flying, but not fearful flying. How about arachnophobia? Anybody? Fear of spiders, arachnophobia. Anybody remember the movie? Remember that movie? Arachnophobia. I don't even know how to pronounce this one, but uh, it's called uh, apithia deophobia, which I know is way off, but you can't do any better, so don't mock me. It's the fear of snakes. Yes. I do not do well with snakes at all. Uh, <laughs> that was not an invitation. I'll have a heart attack. Or walk on water. I'm not sure which will come first. Uh, how about uh, sinophobia? This is the fear of dogs. I know some of you are like, how can you be afraid of dogs? But some dogs, right? Uh, how about trophanophobia? The fear of injections. Who likes shots? Come on, be honest. Who likes getting... Are you serious? No. Oh, I, was, I thought you were like, yeah, I like getting shots. Because I had a bunch of people who were like, well, you can take them for us. Uh, astrophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning. Anybody? Dorian, you're in a safe place here, truthfully. It is being recorded and broadcast live stream, but you're safe. Uh, agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is the fear of being alone in a situation or place where escape may be difficult. This may include the fear of open spaces, crowded areas, or such. Anybody? You wouldn't be here, right? Avery, you're not. You're like all outgoing. Listen to this, though. Approximately one-third of people with a panic disorder develop this. It's almost one-third of people who have any form of panic disorder. How about claustrophobia? Claustrophobia? Over 12% of the population, but mostly women. Isn't that interesting? I don't have an answer for why, but anyway. Claustrophobia. Uh, mysophobia, which I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing that. It's not fear of mice, uh, just so you know. It's a fear of excessive, uh, an excessive fear of germs and dirt. Right? I've seen some of your houses. You do not have that fear. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm seriously kidding. Margaret, I would never say that about you publicly. I'm literally, I, I, I would not do that. I really wouldn't. All right. And, um, and, then, and then the big one, of course, are, and we're lumping this all together, are social phobias, 
which is social, which is fears like uh, public speaking. Anybody? <laughs> Lisa, you're you're so you're so good when you do come up here. So anyway, well, I I tend to cause additional fears in my family's life. Um, I have this very bad habit, and I need to stop. You need to you need to pray for this. So when we're going places, I tend to do a lot of research. I tend to look up a lot of stuff. So I knew this summer we were going to be in bear country a lot. So like an idiot, I decided to look up every bear attack in history that's been recorded. And then I persisted to share those with particularly Jasmine, who does not like when I share this information. And then I went so far as in one of the localities, I actually wrote, actually I didn't write, excuse me, I, I bought a book that my wife's actually reading on the, the first, well, it was the first, it was a, a grizzly bear attack that, that changed the entire national park system. So you need to pray for me. I have an issue. I have problems that I don't know why I do this. So, so then we're hiking in the woods in bear country, and I've read about bear attacks there in the last couple months, and this is what I'm thinking about when I'm walking through the woods. And so anyway, I'm like, everybody got bear spray? So uh, we all at times can be fearful. Well, David has, I would say, uh, a pretty valid reason here to be fearful as his very own son is attempting. Notice it says he fled, but his son is attempting to kill him. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand because I hope that you don't know anyone in that situation. But I want to give you a little background here on Psalm 3 to begin with. First off, uh, this is the first psalm recorded with this superscription. And that is a psalm of David. Also, it is the first psalm in which in the actual uh, title there, it tells us the author. Now, we know from other parts of Scripture as we looked at Acts, I mean, as we looked at Psalm 2, uh, that Acts 4 tells us the author of Psalms 2 is David. But this one, David is identified in the psalm, a psalm of David. So those are all first. Um, uh, this is... Um, the first psalm um, that states the occasion of its composition, why it was written. Now, most uh, commentaries, most theologians, we don't know the e exact time in which it was written, but most believe it was probably written about the time when, when David and his mighty men actually went to war against Absalom and, and, his, um, and his men. Uh, this psalm is the first where we see the word Selah, uh, we see it here in verses 2, 4, and 8. It is mentioned over 70 times. Matter of fact, the psalm uh, Patrick read earlier had the word Selah in it. It's written over 70 times in the psalms. Uh, it says it is generally agreed uh, that Selah is, is some form of musical notation. We don't know exactly, and Patrick's the musician, so he can probably tell you more of this. Uh, we don't know for sure what it indicates. Um, it may be a call to sing or to play louder. So that means if we chanted that during the service when someone's playing, that would be, right? Or it may be a call to stop playing and to think about the meaning of the words or the tone, the content, uh, and the background of this psalm would send, uh, tend to lead towards that. Uh, this is, as we said last week, uh, Psalms 2, we call a royal psalm. Uh, it, it, it pointed to the coronation of our King Jesus, ultimately. This is a song of lament. Uh, David is pleading. He is crying out to the Lord. Uh, he is, if you would, he is, he, he's singing the blues. 
right? David, David is a little down. He's a little distressed. Uh, as we look here at the first two lines, it says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Uh, he has been, uh, he has fled from Jerusalem. And if you have uh, your copy of God's Word, I'm not going to read all this because it's a lot. Uh, but if you turn over to 2 Samuel, it's just going to be like a really brief overview. But the entire book of 2 Samuel is really the life and ultimate death of King David. So 2 Samuel starts off with Saul's death. So it is David's anointing. Now we know God has already anointed David as the future king of Israel. Samuel did that when he was uh, just a teenager, uh, as he was still uh, with his father. But now Saul has died. This is going to be the start of uh, David's coronation. Saul and his son Jonathan, remember, uh, they had been killed in battle. Jonathan was David's best friend, so uh, David is very mournful. He even mourns over Saul. He laments because of the death of Saul, who had also tried to kill him. And then David is anointed king of Judah uh, because the kingdom is divided still a little bit this time. Saul, when a Saul's son kind of takes uh, part of the kingdom, David is the rightful heir, uh, but he takes um, the southern kingdom. Ultimately, there is a battle. David uh, becomes the rightful king. Uh, we see that Abner in chapter 3, who was Saul's, uh, one of Saul's right-hand military men, he comes and joins uh, David, uh, Joab, who is David's right hand in military, ultimately murders Abner. And all, it's, just, it's amazing when you read through this how every time, even those men who were against David, David, the scripture tells us that David mourned those men, uh, that he still cared for even these men who so often were out to get him. Anyway, uh, chapter 5, he's ultimately anointed king over all of Israel. Then as you go through, uh, David uh, is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He is going to build himself uh, this grand place there. He's going to have all these incredible victories because the Lord is continually with David. Uh, he conquers all of these areas. But then we get over to chapter 11. You know this uh, part of the scriptures well. It says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they end up ravaging the Ammonites and so forth and so on. But notice this passage, David is not with them. All through the prior three and four chapters, David has been leading his men out into battle. And you have to understand this whole backdrop because this is why we end up with Psalm 3. So he ends up staying back, right? We get into sin when we're not where we're supposed to be. Amen? Anybody get a witness? Most of the time when we're not where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, that's when sin likes to creep in. David does not go with his men to battle where he should have been. Instead, he stays back. He goes up on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. You know the rest of this chapter but after he commits this sin of adultery she tries to what he tries to cover it up right sound familiar it's what adam and eve did in the garden after they sinned against god what did they do they tried to cover themselves that's within our sinful nature we try to cover ourselves from a holy god has anyone ever been successful doing that 
No. Will we ever? No. Only Christ can cover us. So he tries to cover the sin by actually having Uriah, her husband, uh, sent to the front lines. Interestingly enough, Uriah is one of David's mighty men. This is a valiant warrior, okay? And he's going to tell Joab to go up as they're, by, as they're fighting these battles. And he's going to have uh, Uzziah and another, other men too. There's other men whose life, I think it's 11, I might be wrong there, but it's close to that number, that actually die because he tells Joab to withdraw and the enemy is able to kill Uriah and these other men all because David is covering his sin. Sin will always affect other people. No matter what you think you can hide, it will always find you out. Amen? And this is the scriptures giving us this. So ultimately, okay, this happens. Nathan the prophet, God's man, comes and confronts David. And he tells David, because of this sin, the sword will never leave your house. He says that his own house will rise up against you. And that's in uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. It says, thus, self, thus, thus says the Lord, okay, this is the Lord speaking through Nathan, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Can you imagine, though, I mean, what David is thinking here? Uh, just for freebies, we'll get into it around 2029, 20, uh, but we'll do Psalm 51. In fact, in fact, in like 10 a year, that's five years, right? I don't know what five years from now is, but 2028, 20, right? Um, but he does, after he is confronted by Nathan, he does pen Psalm 51, which is his uh, declaration of repentance, right? Remember how it starts off? He says, for you and you alone have I sinned against the Lord. He sinned against a lot of people. Uh, there are, there are uh, theologians that say that David uh, broke every one of God's commandments in this ultimate act of uh, betrayal in which he took another man's wife and had him killed and the effect it had on others. But God says, this sin, I will forgive you, but there is a consequence. Folks, for you and I, there is a consequence to our sin. God is just, as James, to tell, as James tells us, to forgive us of our sins. But there are consequences that can come about because of this. And because of David's sinfulness in this act, God is going to have literally evil rise up out of his own house. And it says, And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And again, in the next verse you see where you start sensing uh, the writing of Psalm 51. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But he says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. So now it gets over into the next chapter, and we see David's oldest son, his first son, Amnon. Amnon had, had a very unhealthy, a very deviant uh, desire for his own sister. It was his half-sister, Tamar. Uh, Tamar is sisters with Absalom. Absalom and Tamar are, are brothers and sister, brother and sister. Uh, Amnon is a half-brother, okay? Amnon is David's first son. Absalom was his third son. Uh, David had married three different women, and with each woman he had kids. Any men in the house say, one's enough for you? <laughs> Come on, amen? I can't handle any more than that. I mean, that right there, that's just crazy town to begin with, right? He's got three wives already, multiple kids. What can go wrong? 
I mean, what possibly could go wrong in this scenario? And by the way, that was not God's plan for David was to have all of these wives and, and, and ultimate concubines as well. Um, God was one man, one woman, one life. Okay, that was God's design. David also did not heed uh, the Lord's there. So ultimately, Amnon uh, takes Tamar. He, he violates her. And Absalom is furious. And so uh, Absalom will ultimately um, murder his brother. So he is kind of cast out. Uh, he's, he goes away. But again, David mourns both the death of Amnon, who had literally raped his own daughter, and Absalom. Absalom ultimately will come back to Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he sits outside the gate. That's where the elders would sit. The elders would sit outside the, uh, the gates, and they would tend to the matters of the people. So if you had an issue with someone or there needed to be some form of judgment, you would go to the elders outside the gate, and they would render that. Well, Absalom would go to the, went, went to the gate. And Absalom, the scriptures tells us, was, was a, um, just, I mean, like Fabio, all right? I mean, like this, you know, I mean, I don't know, and the Fabio's an attractive man. Chris says he is, so I'm just going to go with that. But you remember Fabio, like three of you? But that's what he, but I mean, like long, like flowing hair, like this just giant of a man, just handsome and very cunning. And he literally uh, was, in, was very malicious in his heart. And he would start to, uh, start to render verdicts for all these people. And he starts to gain a following. And as this grows and grows and the people start to tend to him, uh, he raises up ultimately an army of his own. And then we get to chapter 15. And we have the ultimate conspiracy where he is going to take his father's throne. Y'all good? We just covered like a lot of stuff quickly. All right. Read Second Samuel this week. It won't take you that long, and it's, I mean, I mean, if they made that into, like, a movie, can you imagine? Anyway, David, on, upon hearing about Absalom and uh, desiring to take the throne, he flees Jerusalem. And so now we go back into Psalm 3, and we start to get a, a better sense of why was David... Um, why was David so fearful? Why was he the way he was? So Absalom and all of his men have risen up against David. And this is just, it's continuing to grow. There just seems to be more and more. And he says, many arise against me. Many are saying of my soul, and don't miss this here, there is no salvation for him in God. So what is happening here is they know David's story. They know King David had had this affair with Bathsheba. Uh, they know that he had, uh, that he had uh, caused this mighty act. And they're saying, God can't forgive you. How can God possibly forgive what you have done? You have not only taken a woman who is not your wife. You have had her husband killed. You have done all this harm. There's no way God can ever forgive you. I don't know about you, but... Um, I suspect there are some people in this room that, that that was probably a struggle you had in even coming to faith. Because how can a holy, righteous God forgive me? How could he ever forgive someone like me? And it is a struggle for so many. But God is faithful, and God can forgive our sins if we, in faith, come with genuine repentance to him. So we see David issuing the complaint. So the first thing you see is he brings his complaint to the Lord. He doesn't post it on Facebook. 
I don't, I'm not really looking at you. I'm just being fun. But he doesn't write letter to the editor. No, he brings it to the Lord. What would happen if our first time we had complaints, we actually took it to the Lord? Wouldn't that be like a novel idea? It'd be like pretty amazing. I'd say probably, and I'm just guessing, okay, but I'd say probably 75% of whatever we're complaining about, the Lord would go, you're a clown, move on. Right? That's what he tells me. Probably not you, but he brings it to the Lord. Oh, Lord. He's crying out to the Lord. He is, he is saying, hey, everything around me is falling apart. My own son is out to not only just to dethrone me, my son is out to kill me. This, this uh, psalmist, David, who has written, it, uh, we know over 70 of the psalms, in this one is crying out, the man after God's own heart, begging for God, asking God, telling God what his enemies are going to do. And then later we'll see God will respond. So he says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Well, life can be hard. We will get hurt. We will have people who will come against us. Now, I, I dare say we probably won't have this scenario take place. But when he uses the words here, many are rising against me. This was military language. It was, it was the fact that David is saying, I am greatly outnumbered. The opposition is continuing to grow. And so David begs of the Lord. Buck Parsons has this. He says, this, he says those who say, if you become a Christian, all your troubles will be over, have no clue what true Christianity is. It's only when we become a Christian, that the real war begins. Amen? And if you've not faced any, wait. <laughs> it will. So he tells the Lord what his enemies are doing, and he tells the Lord what the enemies are saying, that they are saying there is no salvation for him and God. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God, that there is no one who can save you. That is the most bitter of all afflictions. David is hearing this. God cannot save you. You know who you are. You know what you've done. But David trusts in the Lord. The story goes of a little boy who continuously sinned and continuously uh, rebelled against his parents. So to teach him a lesson, his father would go out and would drive a nail into the barn door every time he disobeyed. Right? For some of you, you're thinking, that door ain't big enough for all the nails, right? Amen. But after seeing the nails add up on that door, the son went to his father begging for forgiveness. Father, I have sinned against you. So to demonstrate the father's forgiveness, he removed the nails from the door. The story goes that later, though, the son would come back to his father still in tears. And the father asked, what's wrong? The young son answered, the nails are removed, but the holes remain. You see, even when we sin, there are still those holes that remain, those consequences that come with our sin. But notice David did not allow this to destroy him or to keep him destroyed. No, instead, in verse 3, he cries out. So first he takes his complaint to the Lord. Now we see in verses 3 and 4, he cries to the Lord. But you, that but you is pretty significant because there is no one outside of the Lord 
who David can go to. There is no one outside of the Lord who you and I can go to. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. James Montgomery Boyce says, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature and the enemies shrink to manageable portions. You see, when we do not look to God, when we look to ourselves, our enemies, our calamities, all that is against us will seem overwhelming. But David doesn't respond to his critics. He doesn't respond to his foes by getting emotional. Instead, he gets theological. He reminds himself of who his God is and what his God has done for him. That's the same thing you and I need to do to understand what it is that God has done for you. If you are a child of God, then he has purchased you with a price, the price of his only begotten son, that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and I, for our sin. Paul tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf, that I might be the righteousness of God. David knows that God is his salvation, and he looks forward to the work, the completed work, that Christ will do on the cross. You know the old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? That's not what David did. David instead cried to the Lord. He said, you are a shield about me. A shield would protect you, but it would not protect all around you. If you've ever seen uh, particularly movies like Lord of the Rings, which are really cool, or read the books, you know that the shields, they would often gather together and they would lock their shields together to provide protection all around them. But here he says, God alone is his shield. God protects him entirely. There is nothing he can do. There is no one else but only the Lord. He knows the battle is the Lord's. Over in 2 Chronicles, we see Jehoshaphat's prayer. He says, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. You see, David knew from where his help came from, that his help came from the Lord. Even David himself could reflect back on this in Psalm 17. I mean, in, in 1 Samuel 17. You remember this uh, account very well, David and Goliath. So David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David's a teenage shepherd boy, right? He's gone to visit his brothers on the battle line and taken them biscuits and cheese, all right? 
He's been tending to his father's sheep outside Bethlehem. He goes there not intending to get engaged in this battle. But when he sees Goliath and the Philistines mocking the God of Israel, David stands up. And he says, And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. He's not only speaking to the Philistines and to Goliath, He's even speaking to his brothers in arms. He's speaking to the armies of Israel who have forgotten it is God's battle, that they are to be faithful, they are to trust in the Lord. David didn't just pull himself up by the bootstraps. No, he cries out to the Lord. So we see his complaints. He cries, and now we're going to see his confidence is in the Lord. He says... Many, he says here, um, I will lay down and sleep. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He understood the Lord is his shield, Genesis 5. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 115. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And he speaks here of my glory. The word he uses to glory, speaking of the glory of the Lord. He knew where his identity laid. David's identity was in the Lord. Our identity needs to be in Christ. It's not based off some status. It's not based off some occupation. It's not based off of anything but who you are in Christ. That's why Paul uses those little words so often, in Christ. Who are you in Christ? It's not who you are in your, even in your marriage or in your household or in your job. It's who are you in Christ? David knew that it is Christ himself who sustained him and that the Lord himself would lift his head. And I want to read this because it's very, very important. It says, David, it says, understood um, that there was nothing he could do to lift his head in victory, but that the Lord himself would lift his head. In the ancient world, subjects would bow before a monarch, monarch as he judged their case. If the monarch sided against the subject, he would put his foot on their neck to express his condemnation. But if the monarch sided with the subject, he would vindicate him by lifting up his head. David makes this clear. It is the Lord who will lift his head head. David is troubled. He flees from Jerusalem. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that David in this act is a type of the Lord Christ who too fled, passed over the brook Kidron, 
as they would leave Jerusalem, as you would leave the eastern side of the old city, you go down through the Kidron Valley where the brook Kidron would go. And the first thing you come to as you start to go up the hill is the Garden of Gethsemane. David goes out, it tells us in 2 Samuel, with his head covered his, and, and, and weeping. Christ went to the Garden of Gethsemane that night. We know that he sweat drops of blood as he prayed for you and I. As he prayed for his followers, that, that God would continually be with them. Jesus in the garden is betrayed by Judas. David here has been betrayed by his own son. As David left the Kidron Valley, he would have gone past where the Garden of Gethsemane sat as he went up to the Mount of Olives and ultimately passed over and then ultimately descended towards Jericho and ultimately the Jordan where he will cross over with his men and then they will ultimately battle. Psalms 34 says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David has cried out, and now he is showing his confidence in the Lord. How can you not have confidence when someone is after and ready to kill you? How can you not show greater confidence than to lay down and sleep? Think about this. David is being hunted down, and yet he says, I lay down and slept. Why? How? How could he possibly sleep without one eye open or, you know, uh, tin cans all around him that if an enemy were to step before there? I mean, how could he sleep at a time like this? Because his confidence was in the Lord. His faith, his trust was fully in the Lord. He says, I will wake again for the Lord sustains me and I will not be afraid. God answers prayer. Maybe not in the way you and I always want, but God always answers prayer. Spurgeon again says, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Notice at the end of 4, and it says that God answered him from his holy hill. What is that holy hill? That's Zion. That is the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. David had been banished from his throne by his enemies, but God is never banished from his throne. Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews tells us, sits at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean that he sits? It means that his work is complete. That he's not out and about pacing the room, worried about what else we may or may not do. No, the completed work of Christ was fulfilled at Calvary. He is seated at the right hand of the Father where He intercedes on our behalf. That we have access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. David understood he had that kind of relationship. He knew that God would sustain him. I don't know about you, but most people don't sleep when they're anxious. It's just not in our, it's not in our natural nature. When we're worried, when we have a lot on our mind, we what? We stay up. We say what? I had a hard time sleeping last night because I kept whatever, thinking about this, thinking about this. David doesn't have this. David sleeps peacefully. You can go to sleep in peace when you know that the Lord will keep you safe. It's not anything that we can do. 
This is not a message for NRA fans, and that's totally fine. All right, but it's not guns, it's not guard dogs, it's not bar doors, it's not alarm systems, it's not security guards. None of these ultimately keep us safe. It is the Lord. David knew the Lord had him. The Lord was going to protect him. God relieves our fear. David says, I will not be afraid. I will not fear my enemies. It is said that courage is just fear that has said its prayers. The Bible calls this faith. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And the last thing we see here is the comfort of the Lord. We see that David is ultimately comforted. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God. He makes it personal. My God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. This word, arise, O Lord, is a war cry in which David himself is calling on God to act on his behalf. These are the same words that Moses will use with the children of Israel in the wilderness. In Numbers 10, it says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Again, in Psalm 68, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. David prays, Arise, O Lord, save me. We see here, there is no salvation apart from God. There is no salvation apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He presents this bold request that God himself strike his enemies on the cheek and break the teeth. He does not ask God to kill his enemies. No, he asks God to just deal with them. It is, it is considered an imprecatory psalm as well, this Psalm 3, in which in layman's term, this type of prayer is, Lord, you got this, you get them. This may seem harsh, but David is not taking the matters into his own hands. He is asking the Lord to fight his battle. How many times do we go to the Lord to seek, his, to seek him in great times of conflict? Do we seek him to go and battle before us? He basically asked God to knock their teeth out so that they cannot devour him. Notice, God does not have to move to protect you and I. You and I can be surrounded by our enemies. What did David write in Psalm 23? But yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? You have prepared. Notice it says that you have prepared a table before my enemies. David understood it was the Lord's battle and that, the, and that God will give the victory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a great line. This, this, this verse right here, he is saying salvation alone is of the Lord. Nothing David can do to save himself. It is only the Lord who can save him. You and I can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The prophet Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, 
but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This passage, salvation belongs to the Lord, shows us that it is God and God alone who saves. It is nothing that we can do. We don't meet him halfway. We don't need to start turning our life around. No, we simply must profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We must by faith trust that Christ alone and his completed work on the cross will save us. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because you and I both would boast if we had anything to do with it. We cannot save ourselves. Church, tradition, baptismal, Sunday school attendance, gold stars, incense, none of that can save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, the very Spirit of God comes and indwells us, and it changes us. And we will desire to be with God's people. We will desire to give of ourselves. We will desire to steward all that God has given us. But apart from Christ, we cannot be saved. David reminds them, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. We close with this little story. It's a story told back um, of an old farmer in Texas before the Great, Great Depression. So the story is told of Mr. Yates, who owned a farm in Texas. It says the Great Depression came, and he was trouble keeping up with his payments on his farm. The bank began to press Mr. Yates and gave him 30 days to pay his back payments or face foreclosure. With three weeks left to go, a man came to Mr. Yates' door. He worked for an oil company. He asked Mr. Yates to give the company a lease to drill on his farm for oil. Mr. Yates knew he was, not, he was going to lose the farm anyway, so he decided it couldn't hurt. Well, that oil company did drill and hit a gusher, 80 barrels of oil a day. Mr. Yates immediately became a multimillionaire. Now, when did Mr. Yates become a millionaire? When the oil company struck oil? No. Yates became a millionaire the moment he bought the farm. But he lived in poverty because he did not know what was underneath the ground. Likewise, for you and I, until we place our faith and trust in Christ, we live in spiritual poverty. We do not understand the blessings of God that is upon those who are his own. We must trust in the Lord, have our faith in him alone. In writing to Timothy... Paul's son in the faith, and we're closed with this. He writes this. He says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We have been gifted this great gift of salvation by our Lord. What do we do with it? Are we crying out to the Lord for those who are far from him? Do we pray earnestly? Do we implore on the Lord for those that have not by faith trusted in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? What do we do with what God has given us? David wanted to be a blessing to the Lord. David wanted to build the Lord the temple. He was not allowed to because of the blood on his hands, but he assembled all the materials so that Solomon, his son, 
could. David stewarded all that God had given him. How do we steward all that God has given us? He has blessed us with the very breath we breathe. He has blessed us with families we have. He has blessed us with resources and finances and, and gifts and skills. How can we be a blessing to the Lord by allowing simply what he has already given us to be used by his spirit to impact people for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to encourage you today to, to pray for those that are lost, to get other people with you praying, but also to act. We are called to share the gospel. We need to earnestly pray. But David here, if you go back into 2 Samuel, you'll notice David prepared himself to go out to battle with his men to face his son. They would not allow him to go out, so they made him stay, but he did want to go out. We need to be prepared. When we go out, we go out with air King Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning just thankful for your precious word that God, we need not fear for we have been given a spirit, your spirit, that will guide and direct us. Father, that when it seems the enemy may be pressing in around us or those that are sometimes even close by are against us. May we do as David. May we cry out to the Lord and know that our hope comes from the Lord, that the battle is yours, that, Father, you simply require of us to be faithful and obedient. And may we be faithful and obedient in our walk with you, that other people may see our good works and give glory and honor to your Son, Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.